Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Flagler County is celebrating their centennial year. You literally can take the history of the United States, and even before the United States, and you can tell that history through events that happened here, obviously with a local impact, but it goes back to the very, you know, discovery by the Spanish We'll discuss a first-hand account of the Battle of Pensacola in 1814. This is really one of the first narrative accounts of the U.S. operations in and around this part of the southeastern U.S. during the War of 1812. And we'll talk about the Orlando company Randall Made Knives, supplier of knives to hunters, soldiers, and astronauts since the 1930s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Happy anniversary, baby, got you on my Flagler County is celebrating their centennial year in 2017. The history of what is now Flagler County reflects the history of our entire state, including the Spanish and British colonial periods, the Seminole Indian Wars, and growth in the 20th century. On previous programs, we've explored historic sites in Flagler County from the 1700s and 1800s, including Mala Compra, the Bulow Plantation, and Princess Place. On this program, we're looking at the last 100 years. Located in east-central Florida, Flagler County was established in 1917 and was named after Henry Flagler. Cisco Dean is with the Flagler County Historical Society. Henry Flagler bought uh, Udley White's Narrow Gauge, uh, St. John's, and Halifax uh, Railroad in the late 1880s, and, which was narrow gauge, and then he converted it to Standard Gauge Railroad, and then we started getting in people, and we were able to ship goods out. So uh, mainly the railroads and, and the transportation with the, with the potatoes and the cabbage, they could ship them to northern markets. Florida had come out of the Civil War, and it was very devastated. Al Hadid is Flagler County attorney and a local historian. The economy was totally in tatters. Plant, the Florida's plantation economy was, you know, uh, destroyed during the Seminole Indian Wars. They never really recovered. And he brought visitation in by coming into St. Augustine and then Palm Beach and then on to Key West. Well, in the course of doing all that, many wealthy people were attracted to Florida. It spurred the economy. and Flagler County actually became a destination of the wealthy that went to St. Augustine because this was like, I'm going to use this in quotes, like the Amazon. I mean, here you could come, you could find alligators, you could hunt. There were, you know, Florida panthers, uh, wild hog, boar hog. And so it was a very, very interesting place. And of course, there was a lot of waterways, you know, that made it all the more 
interesting. And then the Spanish moss and the oaks, and it looked like a mysterious wild land. And it was not anything like they'd seen before. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, citrus, cabbage, and other crops were grown in Flagler County, but potatoes dominated. Carl Laundrie is chair of the Flagler County Centennial Committee. Flagler County and the Hastings area became known because they could produce potatoes, Irish potatoes, before any place else in the United States. So there's the first fresh crop of potatoes. And it became a huge industry right off the bat because this was something new that, that you know, they could supply potatoes. They, have, they had uh, barrel factories here putting barrels together to ship potatoes out. And the founding fathers were well aware of that. And that's why the Irish potato, I mean, other counties in Florida have waves and palm trees on their official seal. Flagler County has a potato right in the center. Udley White, the, the gentleman I told you that sold uh, his railroad to Henry Flagler, well, he actually took that money and he went up uh, to Hastings, around Hastings, and he developed the land there. And I credit him with bringing the Irish potato there. What he did is he developed it, he sold it out, took a, took a good profit, and then he bought uh, about 30,000 acres uh, south of Bunnell uh, called DuPont, which he developed. And of course he brought in the potatoes. He did a lot of other things. He was an entrepreneur. He had sawmills. Matter of fact, they built the cross ties when Henry Flagler went on down to the Keys. Most of the cross ties on the overseas uh, railroad came from DuPont. As Flagler historian Cisco Dean and lifelong resident Stanley Dean explained, the turpentine industry was essential to the Flagler County economy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Well, the turpentine industry is what actually put it on the map, and it's actually what brought my family here. My great-great-uncle, Senator George W. Dean, I say senator, he was a Georgia senator. He was only senator one term, but in all of his advertisements uh, for selling land and all of this, he's always senator. But he came down, he set up about, I think, 12 or 13 turpentine stills here. And to man these, he brought down family members from uh, Ware County and Appling County, Georgia. Well, first you take and put a cat face on the bottom of the tree, about a foot up, which you tins that the gum drains out of in a cup, and then you chip it, V-shaped chip, and one week, do it again. 10,000 trees make one crop, and the Stricklands had 20 crops. From after that, they got into uh, cutting down the trees and then turning that into farmland. And in the farmland, uh, they began to sell. Now, George Dean brought down a bachelor uh, to work with him called Isaac I. Moody. And Isaac I. Moody uh, is the father of Flagler County. But he came down to work for my Uncle George in the um, turpentine industry and ran into another bachelor. They, they batched it together, 1900 census. They scraped up enough money somewhere and then they bought land from my Uncle George, which is downtown Bunnell now. And of course, the first thing they did was uh, put in a turpentine still. And then around 1908, both my Uncle George and uh, Isaac Moody and Lambert got into the land development business. Ray Mercer is a lifelong resident of Flagler County and was postmaster in Bunnell for several decades. It was a new area opening up for many folks 
both from the north and otherwise around in the areas otherwise. My father's family and my mother's family both came out of Georgia from two different places. Many in Flagler County here of the early settlers who stayed were from Georgia and the Carolinas. As Pastor Daisy Henry explains, African Americans did a lot of the same work as white residents of Flagler County in the early 20th century, but racial segregation was the norm in Florida. It was turpentine, cabbage, potatoes, and pulpwood. And um, my grandfather was uh, involved with the cabbage, and other people that were in the same section had uh, turpentine. And the photo that I showed you, well, it was like we had a line of houses on the front, and then we had a line of houses in the bottom. And the photo I showed you was called the bottom of the dirty spoon, and we lived on the hill. <laughs> Ray Mercer, Daisy Henry, and Cisco Dean offer their perspectives on race relations in Flagler County in the mid-20th century. Well, it was very distinct. There's no question about that. It was almost like you could draw a line on the south side of the white side and the north side of the black side. There was no question. It was not always safe for a black person to come up in the white section of the community at that time. From where we lived at, um, right down past the light, there's a canal there and we weren't supposed to be caught across the canal after dark. And um, I remember right across the street from where we are now, they had a, a drugstore called Moody Drugstore, and we had to go in the back. And uh, well, the, the department stores were different, uh, where you could walk in and do that. Uh, the grocery stores, I remember you had um, two up here and two on the south side. Well, you could come either are, and they would like give the people a little credit and they'd pay them, you know, uh, when they get the little monies on Saturdays or whenever they to get to get the monies, whatever. So it was, it was, it was a division, and like I say, we weren't allowed to go in a lot of places. Yeah. When I grew up, uh, there were uh, two schools, uh, Bunnell High School and, uh, for the whites and Carver High School for the blacks. And uh, it was pretty much like the black school was on one side of town and the white school was on the other. Down on Drain Street, um, they have, that's where uh, old Black Carver School was. We had 11.5 acres there. And the only remaining building there now is what uh, we call the Carver Gym. And down through the history, uh, Reverend Frank Giddens kept it open through the county as a place that the children could come in and do recreational events, whatever. And a little while back, they were talking about closing it down and tearing it down, and we talked to the county about it. and. They worked out something, so now it's a beautiful complex now, and it's used with multiple uh, programs, and right now they got a program called Roads to Success, and these are dropouts, uh, white and black, that go and get their high school diploma, and then, too, they go on to get uh, jobs. Today, tourism drives Florida's economy, and Marineland was one of the state's first theme parks. In 1938, it opened. Uh, I was born in 40, and it closed uh, during the war. And uh, when it opened up in 46 or 47, after the war, I visited there as a child. And uh, I, I lived with my aunt and uncle, and they told me they were going to take me to Marineland, and I thought it was like, you know, the Marines in the, in the service. But I really enjoyed it. It had two tanks. Uh, well, well, it was developed for a film studio. 
But then people would come and look because they had the creatures of the deep in their natural, pretty natural habitat. And you can observe them through uh, little portholes in the side of the tanks. And so the tourists started coming. And then when they developed A1A, you know, fully and had bridges and all, it was a big draw. It was very exciting for me to see the life in the water through the portholes. I went every chance I got. The history of what is now Flagler County reflects the history of our entire state, including the Spanish and British colonial periods, the Seminole Indian Wars, and growth in the 20th century. County Attorney Al Hadid says that Flagler County residents are supportive of preserving that history. You literally can take the history of the United States, and even before the United States, and you can tell that history through events that happened here, obviously with a local impact, but it goes back to the very, you know, discovery by the Spanish of this area. So that interest has created a tremendous support group among the public to allow expenditures that preserve the history and preserve the lands. Located south of St. Augustine and north of Daytona Beach, Flagler County is celebrating their centennial year in 2017. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch the latest episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here a first-hand account of the Battle of Pensacola from 1814 by Arsène Latour. Who was he? Well, Latour was uh, originally from France. He was born in 1778, grew up, spent most of his early years in France, and he was born to, to kind of a, a middle-income, you know, family, civil servant type. But it was really the French Revolution that uh, kind of destroyed that lifestyle. So um, uh, much of his family's uh, wealth had, had dissipated at that point. So uh, he sought very early on in, in the late 18th century, he sought refuge in the New World, and he actually traveled to uh, various French islands in the Caribbean. And it was actually during this time 
time that he joined the French military, uh, he fought uh, against many uh, slave insurrections throughout the Caribbean, uh, eventually made his way to the mainland of North America and settled uh, in and around the, the New Orleans area, so, so the Louisiana Territory, when it was still a French territory. Now, of course, in 1803, it becomes a U.S. territory, but um, that's what's so interesting about Latour and about the people living in this region at that time period. Many were from very different backgrounds, you know, including someone like Latour, who was, of course, of French heritage, uh, but there were uh, free people of color, there were Spanish living in the Louisiana Territory, but they were all, at this point, considered Americans. What's also interesting about this time period is that the Spanish, who still held Florida at that time, claimed that the western border of Florida stretched all the way to the Mississippi River. Uh, the Americans, on the other hand, argued that um, part of that territory uh, was now part of, of U.S. territory. So we had kind of this this movable boundary, uh, and you had people like Latour who were nominally at least French citizens, but they considered themselves uh, somewhat American and, and really just depended on the occupying force at that time. And there was certainly a sense of self-interest that, that guided a lot of these people and a lot of their interests. So, so Latour was living in New Orleans, had uh, many run-ins at least with a lot of American business people. He eventually moved to New York for a brief period of time. Uh, back in France, he had actually trained as an architect and he used a lot of those skills in New York and worked for the uh, city's public works department. He eventually came back to the Louisiana Territory and mapped quite a bit of the Gulf Coast region, including parts of Pensacola, Mobile, and other parts of, of West Florida. But his home base was essentially right around uh, New Orleans up until, or at least leading into, the War of 1812. Now you have here from the Library of Florida History, first editions of Latour's writings. Yeah, that's right. So in 1816, Latour published his only known uh, work, and it's actually an account of his experience uh, working with the Americans during the War of 1812. Now, of course, the War of 1812 is uh, known now as the Second War for Independence between the U.S. And, and the British. By 1814, the Americans had really been taking a licking. The British had had ransacked Washington, D.C. They, they had uh, won various battles in the North, and the British had their eyes on New Orleans. Uh, Latour found himself in New Orleans kind of at the right place at the right time. The Americans started building up a contingent of troops in and around uh, the Gulf Coast region, uh, anticipating this attack. And it was Latour who, uh, believe it or not, was actually the, the chief engineer for a lot of the defenses around uh, not only New Orleans, but also Mobile and other parts of, of West Florida. And this account is a, a firsthand account. He was, like I said, on the ground. He worked with uh, famous figures, including Andrew Jackson. In fact, one might argue that this volume is really a tribute to Andrew Jackson. He really uh, was uh, fascinated with Jackson. He, he really uh, enjoyed his time working with Andrew Jackson and with the American forces. And the, the book is actually broken into several chapters. And uh, if we open it up, we'll look at it. It's actually two volumes. So the first volume is simply a narrative. And looking at that first volume, we have an entire chapter dedicated to uh, the expedition against Pensacola. This was known as the Battle of Pensacola in early November of 1814. And to kind of set the stage, Jackson had just come off a win at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend during the Creek Civil War, uh, and he was pushing a lot of these Creek Indians into Florida, and they were finding refuge with the Spanish. Well, the British were also. So the British were actually building a strong force within what was supposed to be neutral Spanish territory in and around Pensacola. Jackson got wind of this, and he uh, brought a, a group of 3,000 soldiers to uh, invade Pensacola. And in fact, he, he first uh, sent a messenger with uh, an ultimatum, basically saying, if you give up the city, we won't destroy it. Uh, and according to Latour, this was uh, the, the response. He says, quote, These conditions having been refused, Major Pierre declared, 
agreeable to his constru- instructions, that however reluctant to the feelings of the general, recourse would be had to arms, end quote. Uh, and so we have the Battle of Pensacola. Jackson sent in his forces. Um, they met a small group of, of both British and Spanish forces, but they were quickly overrun, uh, and the Americans took the town um, before the, the end of the first day. Uh, most of the British had actually retreated to Fort Barrancas, uh, and it was uh, the following day the British, rather than giving up the fort, they burned the entire fort and, and took off in their ships. So the Americans had effectively pushed the British off of the mainland. Jackson then went back to New Orleans and continued the fortification efforts, uh, which would culminate in, uh, about a month later with the, the famous Battle of New Orleans in December, early January of 1815. What happened to Latour after his time in Florida and New Orleans? Well, as I said, Latour had one of these these fascinating lives that, that a lot of, of these interesting characters in the late 18th and early 19th centuries lived. Uh, he came from an old world lifestyle in Europe, had uh, fought in, in the Caribbean. He had now become a, a, a decorated servant in the American forces. He became a, a U.S. citizen. Uh, and he set about you know publishing his book, which was published in 1816. Unfortunately, when it was first published, it wasn't terribly successful. At the time, uh, both volumes, the first volume, like I said, is a narrative. The second volume is actually a collection of maps that Latour produced himself. Like I said, Latour was a, a trained um, architect, but also a cartographer. So we have these beautiful maps that show the routes of, of Jackson um, heading into to Pensacola and also um, some of the defenses around New Orleans. Uh, so he publishes this book. It, it cost about $5, which at that time was very expensive. Um, so, so it didn't sell well. So he was kind of in financial ruin. Uh, he, he ended up traveling around the um, southwestern part of the country on, on gold-finding uh, expeditions. Uh, he ended up uh, back in, in Louisiana at some point and actually was employed, believe it or not, by the Spanish as a Spanish agent. Spent time in Cuba, in Mexico, parts of uh, Central America. Eventually, uh, by the 1830s, he made his way back to France, where he died in 1837, essentially without much in terms of wealth. And in fact, had he not published this account in 1816, he probably really would have been kind of lost to history. But uh, this is really one of the first narrative accounts of the U.S. operations in and around this part of the southeastern U.S. during the War of 1812. And arguably, this, this invasion of Pensacola kind of laid the groundwork for what we know now uh, are referred to now as the first Seminole War. Jackson, of course, came back into West Florida. He occupied Pensacola again, chasing runaway slaves from American plantations. Uh, When the British left Florida, their forts were occupied by a lot of African Americans who had fought with the British. So so Jackson came in and, and of course, destroyed that that fort uh, on Prospect Bluff and fought and destroyed a lot of the Seminole towns. So we kind of laid the groundwork for for what became the first of three, you know, uh, Seminole Wars. And of course, Jackson is uh, is infamous in Florida history, became the first Florida governor. Um, so their paths never crossed again. Latour, like I said, kind of went off and continued his life. But he's emblematic of, of this type of, uh, again, kind of unbridled self-interest, in, especially in this part of West. Florida, uh, where boundaries were, were very uh, viscous and, and people could move back and forth, that identities changed and alliances changed over time. Uh, so he had an interesting life, and, and he at one point crossed paths with uh, who would become one of the, the uh, later U.S. president, but one of the most you know infamous people in, in American history and, of course, Florida history as well. It's fascinating. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
This is Florida Frontiers. The Orlando-based company Randall Made Knives has supplied knives to hunters, soldiers, and astronauts since the 1930s. Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. My grandfather um, was actually a friend of his, uh, Litch Steinman, up in Michigan, was using a handmade knife that he acquired from a, a maker in Fruitport, Michigan, William Skagel. My grandfather just fell in love with the design of it, and he ended up uh, making one and uh, made another one. And, you know, what started out as a hobby really got going with World War II. That was Jason Randall from Randall Made Knives, who talked to me about his grandfather's legacy. In 1938, Bo Randall founded Randall Made Knives, a knife manufacturing company in Orlando. What started out as a hobby soon became much more. Randall's blades would go on to be used in World War II, the Vietnam War, and even in space missions. Randall was named manufacturer of the best sheath knife by Forbes in 2001. Jason Randall explains what made his grandfather's blades so popular. Orlando was a small town at one time, and a place that, you know, my grandparents, you know, enjoyed and, and liked this area. I guess just the overall quality of, of the knives. I mean, everybody that works in that shop takes big-time pride in what they do, and, and a lot of people say, well, why don't you just hire more people? I mean, it's not for everybody, but I enjoy it. Like I said, it's fun to me, you know, as far as taking a piece of bar stock and carrying it through all the different stages and then, you know, having a blade that can be used. I mean, currently we're making about 150, 160 knives a week. That's a lot of knives that are, that are finished that are going out to the public, and that's a bunch of work. In 1960, NASA approached Randall about creating a survival knife for astronauts. Randall co-created the Model 17 Astro, which went on NASA's first manned spaceflight. Fairly small collection of some of the earlier pieces and you know, the designs or what they came up with. You know, it was a big collaboration with a few different people putting it all together and, and getting knives to all the different astronauts. Or actually, Gus Grissom's knife, they recovered from the capsule really not that long ago. I've actually got pictures of his knife, you know, that was basically a mile down that they, they pulled up and it was still intact and you know, cleaned up real well. It was on a, a traveling display that they did years ago. It was well preserved because of the cooler temperatures, you know, being that far down. The success of the Astro led to a sizable increase in orders during the Vietnam War, and so the Model 18 Survival was born. Jason Randall explains the difference in designs. I mean, we've got certain models that were developed during that time, or my grandfather would get letters and my dad would get letters with certain designs that they were interested in. Most of the military models were heavier use type knives. You know, they were a little bit stouter than, let's say, an average skinning knife. They had a, a smaller blade or thinner edge. You know, a lot of the knives um, that time, even to this day, those models, we try to keep the edges quite a bit thicker. We know they'll probably get abused and um, just don't want to damage the edge. 2017 marked their 80th anniversary, all the history of which is housed in their museum. You know, our whole family, we ended up um, moving our entire collection from the uh, original shop in a garage, you know, off uh, Interstate 4. That was where the original home was. But uh, the current shop is on Orange Blossom Trail, and we ended up moving the entire collection 
um, to my grandparents' old house. Uh, it's on the same property and just boxes and boxes of knives and you know, they've been collected over the years. Uh, most of them were donations and then uh, my grandfather would swap a knife with them, you know, because he was fond of everybody's work, not just, not just what was being produced at Randall. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us online anytime at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.